Hello, everybody. I am so excited today to be speaking to somebody who is East Coast to the max, but has the West Coast sensibility and all points in between. Um, this is somebody that, you know, 2011 Hip Hop Artist of the Year from uh, the Boston Music Awards. Uh, this is somebody who's just been doing it all. Um, 11 movies under his belt and more to come. And uh, George Carroll, you may know him as MC Slane or as Slane and, and so much that he's done. I love that cup, by the way, uh, <laughs> as somebody who's uh, half Irish. Um, thank you for being my guest today. Uh, I appreciate it. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Before we get started, I just want to make sure with the Zoom recording that you're not getting you're not getting text messages come down on your no, screen. No, no, no text. Yes. All right. You're good. You're clear. Um, first of all, let's start where we need to, and that's the Boston hat, Red Sox. How are they going to do this year? Well, I'm not super focused on the Red Sox yet. I'm a little disappointed in the front office, but as you can see. Oh, there um, we go. Ready. There we go. I'll be attending the Celtics game one of the playoffs tomorrow. We got the Bruins going Monday. They just set the single season record oh, for most wins. Cup winners. Yes. Yeah, most most yeah, most wins in a season. And I think we have a chance with both teams to win the championship. So uh yeah, I'm I'm focused on them right now. Of course, I'm a huge baseball fan and Red Sox fan. I'm a little disappointed in the front office, that's all. I, listen, I hear you and I agree and um, about uh, the front office because as, as a Met fan, a Met fan, you are a Red Sox fan. You just are because we have the mutual distaste for the Yankees. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and I'm a big hockey fan. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, the Bruins had just a heck of a year. And as a Knicks fan, uh, I, I fell in love with uh, Cornbread Maxwell and, and, uh, and, uh, all and the, the, Robert Parrish and of course and Bird and those were mine. Those Celtics were mine. Why? Because the Knicks were awful. You yeah. know, in those years, you had to find another team. And well, course, the Knicks were pretty good, good this year. Oh yeah, no, they're very good. We're gonna we're gonna have we have a nice little running running us. Uh, we so have a we have a hard time with the Knicks this year. You guys have beat us in overtime a couple times. I think like you got a good squad. You got some really good young players too, and. Uh, Randall is obviously a beast. He, so he the Knicks, beast. Knicks are better than they've been. And and the problem, I think, with that, if we can get into those weeks for a second, is both teams play very similar. They play very similar ball. Uh, I call it street ball. Kind of ugly, a little transition, um, but it's beautiful. It's it's not just throw up the three-pointer and that West Coast nonsense we have out here. Um, it's very just East Coast proud. Let's just put it that way. But anyway, Where are you based? You're in California? Yeah, I'm out here in California, out in Fresno. And nice. so, um, you know, I came out here 16 years ago from New York City. And uh, so, and I got family up in Cape Cod. So, you know, so I get up that way as well. Um, so much I want to talk to you about. But, you know, the first thing I want to talk to you about is your, char your character of Dom Lorenzo in mm. One Day as a Lion. Um, sincerely, and, and you'll learn this. Um, I, I don't BS. I thought your role was so top notch. And, and here's why. You were put in a very tough position. You know, I, I mean, Scott Kane wrote, wrote it and, and, and uh, John directed it. But you were sort of a middle level manager, but you're not. Uh, and you have a relationship with Jackie Powers, but you don't. Talk to me a little bit about 
what you thought of going into that role because it was obviously you weren't just spitting out, you know, um, a script. Who you know who was Don Lorenzo? Well, I think first of all, like it was very last minute situation, so I didn't have a lot of prep work. I came in, uh, I was called very late in the game, and I started shooting the next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to, I had to kind of really familiarize myself with the character and with the story at a, at a rapid pace, which happens sometimes. And sometimes, honestly, like you can really just rely on your instincts in those kind of situations. That's exactly what I was going to say, because it looked very intrinsic. It was like, this is how I would handle this. I, I wasn't watching somebody act up there. It, it seemed very real. Yeah. Well, you know, like with, with some roles you play, you really have, you really have to study who, a, who a person is, a character is, and not that I wouldn't study in all situations, but sure. uh, given the circumstance, uh, but I felt, you know, I know this guy, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like, that's one of the things about lived experiences. You know, if I, if I, if I read something and I really identify with the character and I know, I know who he is kind of, uh, instinctually, like it's, it's, um, a little easier to like slide into their skin and it's always like driving somebody else's car around. you know what I mean? Like when, when you, when you're playing a role and, uh, you know, I just really kind of focused on, uh, the relationship. It was a very incestual kind of story, right? Like, it's like, Mm -hmm. You know, I, Jackie is my very good friend from childhood. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sleeping with his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also, it's about business for me. He's put me in a difficult position with my boss. He put you in a very, he put you in a very, I don't want to give away the story because I want people to see it, but he put you in a, put you in a very difficult situation. Mm. That's right. Yeah, so so that was kind of the dynamic in the kind of the given circumstances, you know. So, right. Um, yeah, man. I mean, and at, at with that, like, I mean, I really, I really enjoy doing that kind of thing. And uh, you know, it's I always feel very free playing a character, and especially if it's somebody that I know. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. well, because again, without going into any detail of, of common backgrounds. Um, I know that guy. That's all I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> I've been that guy. That's all I'll say. Uh, you know, because you grew up in the neighborhood, they're friends, and then they become associates for certain things. And there's certain discussions that have to be had without giving anything away. How much do you think, and I'll, I'll speak, try to speak in code so I don't give anything away. What happened with your um, conversation with Jackie Powers in the hotel room led to your decision at the end of the movie? Well, I think uh, I'm very conflicted throughout, right? So, you know, speaking of acting, I I think Dom has to act in all these different scenarios. So he's playing different roles in in each scenario. And, uh, you know, there's a certain element. What was interesting is there's an element of fear that I have with with, uh, Frank's character. Right. And... uh, yeah, and then you know, then there's when I'm uh, when I'm doing the scene with J.K. Simmons. Uh, you know, I'm very much coming in as an intimidating force, so there's no mm-hmm. fear, right? Yeah. It's kind of and uh, and with Jackie, it's like it's it's a friendship that's kind of been betrayed, 
Mm -hmm. that's in the act of being betrayed on both ends right Right. so there's uh you know he kind of takes the tack where he's like i'm not afraid of you you know and i have to come and be the enforcer and the intimidator and i'm put in this position where you know i have to choose between my personal loyalties and my professional life Mm -hmm. and uh you know that was kind of the element to play so i'm kind of a different different guy to each person in the in the story but isn't that life? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because sometimes I, I, I talk to people, I've been podcasting now for a couple of years, and I talk to different people about certain things. It's not that, oh, this person's fake here, or this person's fake. It's different clothes we got to wear. It's different aspects of, of our full person. So when when you're talking to uh, this the Simmons character, you know, you have you have to be one way, and that's your true self. When you, you're talking to the Frank Grillo character, Paul Russo, which I thought was great, was because, again, not over, overstating uh, the acting performance, but you played perfectly that intimidated and respect, intimidate and respect, and enough of friendship there. Because that's what we do. If, if I'm friends with a boss who, who I know can just kill me, there's all those things are happening at the same time. Yeah. So, um, I yeah, so that was the you. fun thing to play with and that, and that, you know, playing Dom, uh, I got to kind of play with all those different dynamics. There's a different dynamic in every scene, uh, right. depending on what position of power we are in. Right. And I think a lot of people could relate to that in professional environments or, uh, you know, even like physical kind of, you know, dominant, dominant kind of oh, yeah. themes so uh in life that we just face like you know you're not going to talk to the to to your boss the same way you talk to your employee you're not going to talk mm. you know talk to the the guy who's six seven three hundred pounds who's in your face as you would right. to the guy who's more your size or, or smaller you know oh, oh absolutely it's much easier for me to punch down than it is for me to punch up. Just, <laughs> just saying. But so, you know, I mean, you've worked with some amazing people. You know, ben, ben Affleck's in 2007, Gone Baby Gone. And you just mentioned J.K. Simmons and Academy Award winner. And, of course, the great Frank Grillo and all points in between. How do you, and whether it's with, with your music, whether it's with, with uh, your acting, how do you go into that? Uh, you, you, because let's be honest, you, you, you're sitting there, you're, you're sitting across Academy Award winners, but yet you know, you know intrinsically you belong in that room where you can at least fake it enough from time to time. What's your process? Yeah, I really don't think about that aspect of it too much. And I'll tell you why. I, um, I got a good dose of that with hip hop music. So I didn't have movie stars on my wall. I always loved movies. Uh, you know, I... Back in the days of video rentals, I would go and mm-hmm. rent everything I could. I mean, you know, I got to a point where I had seen everything and 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 in the video store. You know what I mean? So I, I've seen a lot of movies. I, I'm a student of film. I, I like to. I like to. I've always enjoyed like dissecting, you know, themes and um, and acting performances and photography and all that i really i i love the craft in general across the board you know from the acting to the cinematography and all that but uh 
I didn't canonize actors the same way that I did uh, hip hop artists, you know? Right. So like my heroes growing up were, you know, House of Pain and Cypress Hill and Wu-Tang Clan and Nas and Biggie Smalls and Ice Cube and, you know, people like that. So like at DJ Premier. And when I had the experience of working with some of those people early on in my music career or at the beginning of my music career, uh, my professional music career anyways, um, that was when I felt like, oh my God, do I belong here? That was where it was like, I was much more in a position of awe, of shock and awe and having to like center myself and ground myself. Those guys were superheroes to me. Mm -hmm. actors not so much like you know and um to be honest with you i feel a thousand percent more comfortable comfortable acting because of what i said about like driving somebody else's car around there's no reason to be self-conscious as an actor mm -hmm. because it's not you right you're playing somebody else right, right. so right. um you know, it, it's I, I feel comfortable in that element. And, you know, and also the music came first. So I kind of got some of that starstruck stuff out of my out of my system early on. And, uh, you know, when when I'm acting in a scene, I, I really just am in it like as right. the character. And I try to just live in the given given circumstances. And and I try not to think about anything else that's going on outside of what that world is. So, you know, we're talking about music, and I, I listened recently to your um, interview on the podcast, One Life, One Chance with Toby Morris. So, and and I'm, I'm a firm believer, I'm not a big who's the GOAT, top five. That's just not my thing, and people like talking about it. But I've, what I find interesting, and again, what I know specifically to the hip-hop world is can fill a thimble, maybe, but um, I just... What would you classify Arrested Development as? Because I think the song Tennessee is brilliant. What it's about, what it says. So where are they in 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 that world? In the icon, where would you put them? Well, you know, everybody has their own opinions and all that. I don't think that I'm like specifically, uh, you know, that my opinion is is worth more than anybody else's. I, 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 I agree. I mean, just I, two guys Arrested talking. Development is hip-hop and they're a great group from the from the golden age but i mean to My me yeah, yeah. To, to to me i mean there's i would name 50 groups ahead of them or you know they wouldn't no, which is great register and, so but i, but I appreciate i appreciate their artistry and and um mm -hmm. they've definitely they definitely i think they had another song too that was pretty good and uh but i never really to be honest with you i haven't I, mr Wendell was another big hit by them I haven't done the deep dive into their catalog, and, and yeah. you know, when I was that age, I was into much harder stuff. Like, oh, no, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, I hear you, and you know, for, for me, like for example, I went from Arrested Development to the Fugees. You know, Woman Don't Cry, I think is brilliant. In fact, I think I like that version better than the original. And I know you're supposed to get beaten, taught, and feathered for the for saying that, but uh, it is it's just wonderful. Uh, and like I tell people. Because I grew up more into, uh, at my age, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm about 10 years older than you, um, more of that CBGB's punk music and some of that world, and then into, 
kind of like that house music and then hip hop and some of the other things that were going on at the time and then the 90s grunge and whatever. Um, music resonates in our lives, doesn't it? And I, in fact, I was just telling a mutual friend before we started, one of the many things I love about um, John and uh, Jeremy's collaborations is how the words and the music are wonderful. The music in those movies are just, it's just top notch. You know, I mean, music is so important. Yeah, you never realize how big a role audio, music, obviously, but just audio in general plays in a film until you watch it with, before it's been added in. Right. So I think that, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, so it's, it's something that like throughout life, I need music. I mean, music is such a, I mean, it's a, a coping mechanism, a release, like it's, you know, when we're when we're in pain, we listen to music. When we're celebrating, we listen to music. You know, I, I, it's just uh, you know, what would life be without it? Well, I tell you, you know, I mean, we we talk about um, a lot of things that you're doing right now, and and all the things we can't forgive is your latest album, and you talk about trauma, and um, to me, that ties into addiction, that ties into recovery, that ties into a lot of who we are. Uh, and a lot of times we don't even know the trauma that we have. I mean, I, like, um, you know, I know, and I don't know what, what the ramifications were, but single household alcohol, one of my parents, alcoholic parent, um, disengaged one of my parents for almost 10 years. Um, you don't know what it is, but you can't quantify it, but it's there, isn't it? Well, 100%. And I mean, you know, different people experience uh, trauma in different ways and I think like we can put all the traditional things that are traumatic but there's even more the list goes on and on and you know what might be very traumatic to you might be right. you know uh, normal to me or you know and and again it pops up later in life too there's a reason why I wrote that album when I was much deeper in my sobriety and mm -hmm. uh, you know and I accidentally kind of stumbled on it really just in the form of heartbreak and it kind of uncovered some things through internal work that I did in the program and I realized what I mean this is about me right like, I mean right. this is about the way that I'm processing things because of these things that happened in my life because of these things that I can't forgive these right. things that I can't forgive in other people so it's like that album is really about the things we can't forgive are the things that we will consistently repeat in our lives because it affects our perception right and life mm -hmm. is all in your perception we create yep. internally our life is created from our inner state Correct. so until we can kind of let go of some of those things we can't forgive we can't even live uh, a, a a free a life with freedom mm -hmm. from those things because they they ultimately become our uh kind of our capturers right they 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 we're beholden to these resentments and these fears and and these things that we can't forgive. And I don't think we have to forgive. I mean, this is just me talking my opinion. Uh, what we have to do is understand that as part of who we are when we make our decisions. Um, but someone does you dirty, does you wrong, you, and it's going to affect the rest of your life or whatever, or, or where you are at that, per, that time, you, you don't need to forgive them. I don't, again, me. I, yeah, I mean, for me, I do. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> um, I can't have freedom for that thing, right? So there's a famous saying, I'm sure you've heard it, like resentment is a cup of poison you 
pour for your enemy and drink yourself, right? So yep. I don't, you know, I think the understanding like what forgiveness forgiveness means it's it's for me it's not for that person yes so it doesn't mean i have to invite them back into my life to wreak more havoc Mm -hmm. it means that i'm letting go of it internally and accepting things as they are and accepting that person and having some level of compassion for the human condition like Mm -hmm. you know that hurt people hurt people and for them to behave in that way that they probably were hurt in a similar way as kids or whatever it was and they're carrying that so so if i don't have if i don't have some it starts with forgiveness for yourself right so if usually the things i really loathe in other people are the things that i loathe in myself right so Mm -hmm. it's like if somebody's really enraging me with something they did then i i I have to look internally it's the resentment is always with me it's never with them so you know and again there's also acceptance for that's the way this person is and i could just move on from having that person in my life i can still forgive them in other words let it pass and not hold it in my heart as something that makes me sick internally so yeah i mean and and i get that and and again different strokes different folks i agree with that but i'll give you a great example what i mean and so when i was younger living in brooklyn we had uh, neighbors on the block who ended up, the kids around my brother's age, my age, they broke into our house when they knew that my mother, and my, my mom, single mom, got nothing. You know, my dad had a $32,000 a year salary, three kids. Um, they got divorced. Um, and they broke into the house, stole, stole a bunch of stuff, stole all my mother's jewelry. Now, as an adult, even, even as a young person, I can understand that happened. Mm-hmm. And I can understand that they were going through trauma themselves, probably hooked up or whatever they needed to do. And it's not that I forgive them as much as I want nothing to do with them. I mean, I wish them well. Goodbye. That's that's where I sit. I'm that kind of person. But I want nothing to do with you. You know, yeah. I'm not going to come hunt you down and I'm not going to let it sleep, the you know, lose sleep over it. But it's not OK. How's that? That's kind of where I sit with those with that kind of thing, you know? Um, I am not going to say that I forgive. I'm not that strong of a person. And yeah. I know about myself. Because I know that I'll, I'll get triggered and go to a bad place. Yeah, and, listen, you're, t- you're talking about somebody who had such a, uh, such a uh, problem with forgiving anybody. Like that, right. I had to come to some peace around it right and i'm not saying i'm a saint and i just forgive everybody and i let people walk all over me no i know i'm just saying that in order like i can get so sick from you know i have uh wrath mm-hmm. and you know wrath and pride my two biggest character defects and and you know i have an ego that wants to smash and obliterate people who cross me mm-hmm. and to live in a constant state of that is uh is something that if, if I am doing that, I stay very sick in my addiction. No, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, there's one thing that I like to see in, in performers, not that they have to for me, of course, but we're starting to see more people do what you're doing now. Music, film, writing, talking, work, working over at the chief community, as chief community relations officer at Charles River. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, everybody seemed like, hey, you got to keep it real. You got to stay in rap. Well, you got to stay as, a, as an artist. 
movie people can't do television. Television people can't do movie. You're an entertainer. You know, you're an artist. It's changed, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've never, I've never really liked any restrictions like that. I mean, at at the in the beginning, I'm a white rapper, right? So that right there is maybe not so much now, but when I started doing it, it was very much like what, right? You know, right. are you kidding me? You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like there weren't that many of them. <laughs> so right. I, you know, it's like I've always kind of felt like. Um, you know, black sheep in a lot of different ways. And I've never really let like anyone's opinions box me in. And uh, yeah, I mean, like, look, if, you, if it's something you enjoy doing, I, I tend to think like none of, I didn't actually choose any of this stuff. It all chose me, you know, mm -hmm. and that goes, that goes for, um, you know, working with people in early recovery, like that shows me like it's, it's, just the circumstances uh, of opening up Charles River Recovery and being a part of that, like that wasn't something I intended to do. It was something that kind of chose me and found me. And uh, and the pandemic kind of put me into this place where I was like out in the community and I just, you know, I can't do like Zoom. I, I don't like to work my program on Zoom. I need human connection. And it, you know, it eventually turned into, um, you know, opening up a place that's a resource in the community. And the same thing with, uh, with acting. Like, I, I mean, I didn't really choose to be an actor. It kind of found me. And mm -hmm. I think like a lot, a lot of things are like that, where it's kind of like we get, you know, I, I speaking of creating something internally, like when we, when we have a passion and a gratitude for something naturally, it's something that we really love to do. I think it, it has a way of finding finding us and right. kind of and kind of becoming our path i, mm -hmm. I really believe that oh no I, I agree and let's talk about recovery a little bit and i want to start with a misnomer in my opinion that, that you prove out there there used to be you have to do it for yourself you have to do it for yourself and i heard you talk about this no you did it for your son yeah. you know I, I know when my dad went through his recovery, he did it for his children. You know, he did it for his children. I, I mean, um, when he called me and my brother in to take the guns out of the house, um, he, he did that for us because he knew what he wanted to do, but he wanted to get well for us. Talk a little bit about that, about breaking that paradigm that says you, you have to do it for yourself. I mean, I think over time I ended up, you know, for the long term, I have to do it for myself. I have to find, um, you know, I have to find forgiveness for myself and some mm -hmm. sense of self-love. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us can struggle with that. You know, I yeah. have a self-loathing streak <laughs> that I still can struggle with at times. Uh, and maybe that's just the creativity and the artistic side. But, you know, I, th I think like, um, I, I didn't love myself enough to get sober for myself. Like, so doing it for myself was never really an option. And I also was, my identity was so tied up with drugs and alcohol and, mm -hmm. and chaos and violence and um, all the things that go with that. Like I wore that stuff like a badge of honor. So there was nothing that was going to break me from that pattern. Nothing. There was no consequence. There was no opportunity, nothing. And uh, you know, but, but when we have that 
that moment where we realize how badly it's affecting somebody that we really love more than we love ourselves. And, you know, for me, it was my son. So, you know, for a lot of people, I think it is because that is the realest sense of unconditional love we ever experience as humans is is in our children. Right. So, I mean, there's no way that I ever find my way without uh, the love that I have had and have for my son you know mm-hmm. oh yeah and, and i think you said something i mean all of it's powerful but you end up having to do it for yourself later on but to get there you have to you whatever it, it is to help you get to where you want to get it's okay um so for example i'm a big harm reduction advocate i'm a yeah. big believer that uh so like We've given away free naloxone. We've given away fentanyl testing strips, you know, and three or four years ago, even um, people didn't want to grab that stuff because what are you trying to say? I'm a druggie. My kids are druggie. My, now people understand it's saving some lives. And, and um, that's all part of it. I, there was a gentleman named David Postis who unfortunately passed away. And he wrote this great book about how Suboxone gave him 20 plus years of uh, life. He was able to get married and have some kids and, and do some wonderful things. He's a wonderful, he was a wonderful author. Um, very big into music, by the way. Um, it, it's kind of changed and, and because back then, the only way that seemed to work or that people advocated was 12 steps, that's it. You know, sweat it out on the bed. Um, things have changed, haven't have, have it? Absolutely. And, you know, by the way, you're talking to a guy who's the 12 steps have saved my life. So I'm a big believer in the 12 steps. That's what my dad did. Same. Yeah. If you hang around long enough, though, man, like, you know, they say cunning, baffling, powerful, right? Like this thing will humble all of us. Right. So this Mm -hmm. every situation is different. And of course, like, you know, for people who don't believe in harm reduction, um, I'll give you this as a simple thing. Like, you know, even people in the 12 step programs promote harm reduction in this way. Like they tell you to, when you're having cravings early on, right. Or you want to use, you have to have some sugar, right. Is that not harm reduction to have a cigarette, to have a cigarette. If you're stressed out, is that not Mm -hmm. harm reduction? We know that cigarettes are very, uh, unhealthy and kill people it's just it's not as quickly as drugs and alcohol but uh you know i would say that's harm reduction in other words like when somebody comes in absolutely somebody comes in for detox like in you know they're a drug addict and an alcoholic uh, they might also be like a gambling addict a sex addict and everything else but we're putting first thing first like you're here for we're not we don't have to fix the entire problem in seven days right so right that is harm reduction, right? Like we're just addressing the most, uh, the thing that's on fire at the time first. Right. So I, you know, to not believe in harm reduction is is kind of silly. You know what I mean? Oh, because oh, I agree. Um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. But with the medication, yeah, it's always, it's, you know, and it goes both ways. So like I said, mm-hmm. it's, it, at the capacity that I am working kind of in this field now um, over the past couple of years, I've seen a lot, man, and there's no one correct answer. And, you know, sometimes methadone or suboxone can be a hindrance and sometimes it can be a help. And I've seen everything from um, 
from one side of the spectrum to the other. And, you know, a lot of people are just addicted to medication and, you know, you don't, you really have to take it case by case. And I totally agree. The answer is always compassion, you know, like, and it's not up to me what somebody else's recovery looks like, like what works for me might not work for the next guy. Mm -hmm. And what I want might not be what somebody else wants. Now for me, I don't want to be dependent on any substance or any medication. And, you know, there's been times in my sobriety where there's been difficult decisions. Like, should I, you know, maybe um, medication would benefit me, you know, and I haven't done that, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I'm not saying that if, if it was recommended to me and I, and I made a decision that I needed to go on some sort of medication that I, that I wouldn't, I think right. it's case by case and it depends on the scenario. I th- recovery to me is what's making your life better. So if, you know, somebody is on medication that's saving their life every day, that's what's important. Let's get them. Let's keep the person alive today. Mm-hmm. And we never know what's going to happen or where they want to go after that. That's, that's kind of where I fall on it. You know? Oh, I, I, I do as well. I do as well. And um, I, I know, um, a lot of police officers, uh, first responders that I grew up around in my neighborhood of Brooklyn, um, they who fought alcoholism or fought quaaludes because that was back then, late 70s, early 80s or some of the other things, we would go to, a, say, a Dunkin' Donuts at three in the morning because that was a time that we would they would use or would, would find themselves in a bad spot. We would just sit there and really not even talk. just. It's that time my body is used to being up at this time doing something. And it was just sort of that refocusing. Uh, I have a friend of mine who played in the NHL. Um, we go, I'm a cigar smoker. So we would go to the cigar shop sometimes and people would look at us because we're both on our phones like this. Why aren't you guys communicating? Because I just need somebody to sit with who gets me. I'm trying to shut out the world because this is the time that I would be doing this by myself. I just need to be doing something by myself. So there's even that whole, when you're overcoming trauma or working with trauma or working with overcoming addiction, because I I see the two together, what it looks like on the outside might not be what's going on. Sometimes we just need a good listener or somebody who understands me enough to let me sit and do nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how I really identify if I have a good friendship with somebody, a a good relationship with somebody is I can sit in silence with them comfortably. Right. And I don't have to say something, you know, when you don't know somebody that well, and you feel like you're sitting with them and you have to say something in order for it not to be uncomfortable. Right. No, I I, I agree. A a thousand, a thousand percent. I want to go back to a little bit your music because you I've heard you talk about, how, and of course you evolve. Some of your earlier music you wouldn't wouldn't want to listen to a play today, and, and some of your, your your other stuff. But isn't that kind of that's a good thing, right? I mean, that's how we grow. I mean, that's, gross, I mean, yeah. God knows there's there's words that I use back in the day I would never use now. That's who you know, and and not because of any sort of gaslighting and woke culture, but just growth, personal growth. Yeah, personally. So with your fan base, you probably get, oh, come on, did you want to play? Do you just tell them or you just don't do it? Or, or how, how do you make that work? 
Um, so it's funny because I got a message from somebody the other day and, uh, and they said, you know, your stuff from the, uh, the first mixtape I put out was, I was very heavily into active addiction and I, you know, I had a certain anger and hunger and desperation that, uh, this gentleman who is an active addiction seemed to really identify with. And mm-hmm. I get that. Like that's uh, that's where kind of his head's at. And he was like, man, like, you know, the stuff it feels like it's like half-hearted now, or it's not as in- inspired. And the the reality is, is like he was referring to some music that is by far my most inspired work. Right. right. And um you know, and also the highest level of technical ability and the and the craft that's been developed over years and years. But if somebody if somebody is at a certain place, they want to identify with something that's at that place. So right. so and it's the same reason why, and I think I talked a little bit about this on Toby's podcast that you referred to, but like, you know, I hear music from a, a 18 year old kid who's maybe really talented and I could respect their craft and their music, but I don't necessarily listen to it because I'm just at a different place in my life. Mm-hmm. So it's no knock on the music. I'm just in a different spot. So, you know, all I can ever do is make music that's reflective of where I am now because it's a present moment thing I'm writing in the present moment mm-hmm. about what I'm feeling in the present moment what I'm going through or even if I'm reflecting on something in the past I'm writing about it from the perspective of the present moment right so it's all through that filter and a long time ago I realized like I make music for me and my own personal experience and whoever else wants to get on board with it great that's a blessing but I can never make music based on what I think other people want to hear because it's a betrayal. Then it stops being art and it starts, starts becoming a product. It starts becoming a commercial product. And there are some people that do that and they do very well with it. And that's, I'm just not one of them. I, I I believe I want to give the credit to Eric Appler, who I've I've had on my show. He has a, a radio show up in Canada who said that a lot of artists and I want to know if this is true with, in your case, find the second album the most difficult. Because the first one, even though it took you 10 years of, of writing, um, you know, b- before you got to World With No Skies, your first solo album, at least. Um, yeah. The second one, it seems to be like, do I repeat what I did? Do I, I I'm growing a fan base and I, I'm doing this organically. Do I give them more of the same do I do something radically different? And, and his thought was that a lot of people tell him it's the third album where you really start to find your groove. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny you mention that because I'm just thinking, and I think my second album came out 10 years ago today. Uh, it's called mm-hmm. The Boston Project. So I ha- kind of had a cheat code for that, right? So, and, and again, the waters are muddy because the first couple albums I made were mixtapes that weren't technically mm-hmm. official albums. A World With No Skies was my first album, but it got pulled off the shelves and I had to recreate half of it to put out A World With No Skies 2.0. So I don't know what's considered my second album, but I think technically on the books, The Boston Project was my second album, which is a cheat code because it's a collaborative album where I I want at the time, like, you know, uh, Gone Baby and the Gone and the Town had come out. La Coca Nostra was probably the biggest group in indie hip hop. 
for a few years. And, uh, and I wanted to take the attention that I had and put it back on my city because I thought that Boston was kind of an overlooked city for hip hop talent. And I put a lot of people on that record. And so in one way, it, it was a great way to kind of highlight the people who supported me and made me who I am, you know, like without the people of Boston, I don't have a career. They're the ones who backed me, supported me, got behind me. They're the, the, my inspiration. It's where I write from. Um, it's my home. So, you know, in one way it was like a way to give back. And another way it really took the pressure off the, what the next album is going to be because it was very, it was collaborative. And, right. uh, and then I guess the, my next true solo album was the king of everything else and i recorded that at the same time that i did the boston project and it was very much uh i felt in this way like i was indestructible and it was like i was crashing into a wall and i knew it mm -hmm. but i was enjoying i was like thrilled by the high speed that i was going at even though i saw the wall coming and that's what that record was so I didn't feel too much pressure from outside forces. It was really like my world was exploding in a, in a negative way. My world was crumbling all around me and I was speeding through it like faster than a speeding bullet right into a wall. So what is your process without giving away secrets? Are you a lyrics first and the music? Are you music first and the lyrics? Are you, I hear something, this reminds me of something I might want to do. What's your inspiration? Well, I was always lyrics without music for, for my entire childhood. And, you know, I would get instrumental tapes and I would write to some stuff like that, I guess. And then it became like go through beats and, you know, music first and then craft the lyrics around the music. And then as as I evolved and I uh, started really working in the studio all the time, you know, like I would stay in the studio for weeks and weeks at a time. And uh, that's kind of where I really started to kind of master what I do, master my craft and and write very quickly. And like, that was my process, especially in my active addiction because I was just, it was just me and the music and the studio has no windows and I am just locked in. Right. Um, and, you know, that was when I learned how to write with the music at the same time while the music's being built and, let the music build off of what I'm doing. And then I build off of what the music's doing and it goes back and forth. So I've really only worked with a few different producers for my solo work mm -hmm. in the past 13 years, maybe the four producers, three producers, uh, Static Selected, DJ Lethal, Lewis Bell and The Archetype. And uh, with all of them, I sit in the studio and craft it that way. I don't, nice. I don't really accept beat submissions from people uh, generally. Unless I hear something that I think is amazing and I'm like, right. but I don't actively look for that because I really, I'm in it for the process. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like I said, it's not really a product to me. It's a process. It's like a, it's a feeling. It's a, it's a way to, to uh, cope with my feelings. It's a way to get out what I'm feeling. And it's a way for me to examine what my perceptions are. How, how do you I'm gonna shift gears now, just in terms of a holistic approach to you, without giving away any personal stuff? How do you 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 are doing movies? You're doing music. You're doing stuff in recovery. How do you find time for you? And um, I know I struggled. One thing for many years of 
I knew what I didn't like, but I don't know if I knew what I'd like to do. So even on my downtime, other than sleeping and resting and having a lot of cigars and a couple of cocktails, I didn't know what I wanted to do. What do you like to do? And I know now what I like to do. What do you like to do? How do you find time for yourself, for self-care? Well, I still struggle with finding time for self-care. And, um, you know, as I said before, all the things that I do, um, they're things that I naturally do. I would do any of the things that I do for free. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's just they've become my life and my livelihood. Uh, but I do struggle with finding time to power down. It's funny because I'm actually doing that this week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I'm actually, cause it's April vacation for the kids. And, and that's really what I like to do is I like to hang out with the kid with, with, you know, with the kids, man. Like I like to hang out with my son and watch games and watch movies and throw the baseball around and go to the gym and all that. And I like to hang out with my, my woman and, and, um, and her daughters and, um, which I consider like my own, you know what I mean? I like to spend time with all of them and yeah, that's the downside to being so busy with all this other stuff is sometimes I cheat myself out of that time in, in service to these other passions that I have. So b- before before I let you go, I heard you talk on, on the podcast we mentioned um, talking about Candyland. I want to, st- again, and, and before, ask you about that. I think that movie is absolutely brilliant. Me too. Um, and um, I, I'd compare it to American Beauty because it really takes um, topics because I know truck stops intimately. That's all I'll say. Um, it takes, <laughs> it takes um, topics that normally people don't talk about, like American Beauty did, and really just throw it out there in, in a way that's not preachy. Here it is. Here's what the reality is. Deal with it. And, um, yeah, I think John, John is a brave filmmaker. And, you know, it's, it's also... Um, part of what I love about independent filmmaking. I mean, it obviously comes with its own set of challenges, just like music does, monetary budgets, all that. You can be limited at times, but the the trade-off is that you get freedom and nobody's dictating how you can present things or saying, what? You're going to what? You can't do that. You know? Yes, you uh, can. Watch me. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, it's funny because... it's it's i'm not in that one i've done a lot of movies with john and jeremy and uh i'm not in that one and it's one it's i told them after i saw that at the screening i said i think this is my favorite film that you've done you know you know i'll tell you a little inside baseball story because when i went to the premiere out out, uh, in southern california i brought my daughter with me and my daughter is 22 23 and at first she was like i said no she knows this is a little reality. She loves it as well. It's just because that that's the real world. Those are that's just the kind of the real world. One other one I wanted to ask you about that um, is body brokers because of what you do now. I think that movie and Candyland both are going to have incredible legs because absolutely. I was going to say that I think those are my two favorite 
films that John has done, and I'm not in either one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, yeah, it's great. So what what what's what's next for you? Um, well, I did. I've I've. I did some pretty cool stuff in the past six months. Some of it I can't talk about yet, but uh, got some cool opportunities coming up. I'll continue to act and I don't chase it, man. I really just, uh, you know, take it as it comes and only do stuff that I'm really interested in doing. And um, yeah, and same with music. I'm finishing up an album and halfway through another one because it just happens like that sometimes. And but I'm not rushing it and I'm not, there's nothing that I need to get out of any of it. You know, I have everything, everything that I need in my life. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of doing what feels right a day at a time. And, and, uh, and I feel like eternally grateful to even be here and be alive. So. Well, thank you for sharing your story with me today. And uh, thank you for all that you do to help people now in addiction and your music and your movies. And uh, I mean this sincerely when I'm at the Cape this summer, you know, if you're in the area, um, like to hang out. Yeah, cigars on right. me. Let me know. I like smoking I cigars too. Excellent. <laughs> Have a good day, sir. All right. Thanks, man.